0: two one all right guys great to see you i'm so glad that we're able to be together for this equipping hour Uh, let's take a moment and we'll uh, begin with a word of prayer father thank you for the church thank you that you have made us one body we uh, realize that this is bigger than us what happens in the church goes back from before the beginning of the world You had a plan in mind to glorify your son. And uh, Lord, you've allowed us to be part of it. You've actually more than allowed us. You've sought us out. You have adopted us. You've given us the spirit. You've united us to Christ and you've united us to one another. And we want to, first of all, just give you praise. We want to celebrate you today. And we also want to come and ask you that you would Help us to live lives that make you look beautiful and uh, use today as part of that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, right, it's equipping hour, and um, I'm glad you're here. We're here for uh, equipping, and uh, we only have an hour, and we're trying to fill that hour as much as we possibly can. We're trying to stuff it. So it's a big help when you're able to be here on time, and we gave you an extra hour today uh, to get here on time, so you're welcome for that. Uh, But we're uh, talking about how can we help each other become more like Jesus. Or uh, you could say we're talking about gospel care. And what is gospel care? I love the definition in our book. I think I'm going to try to quote it every week until we almost have it memorized as a church. Gospel care is the God-exalting, grace-saturated art of loving another person through patiently knowing, sacrificially serving, truthfully speaking, and consistently applying the gospel in order to help them become more like Jesus. So that is our subject, gospel care. That's what we're here to be equipped to do, not just to get some more information about people out there different than us helping others become more like Jesus, but actually what we want to do is help each other be personally involved in this process of helping someone become like Jesus in this process of gospel care. And uh, we began a few weeks ago now by talking about the need for spiritual growth, and uh, we wanted to say This is important. This is a priority. We're supposed to be growing spiritually. Something's wrong in our lives. If we're not growing spiritually, Christians grow. That's what we do. And then we talked about the role of biblical friendships in growing spiritually. So when we think about how do we grow, we often uh, think about uh, studying God's word on our own, or we think about listening to preaching. And both of those are obviously very, very important means of grace, ways that God's given to help us grow. But looking at the Bible, it's clear there are other necessary elements when it comes to a spiritual growth. And one of those elements, big time, is biblical friendships. So we want every person at Cornerstone to be receiving good teaching. We want every person to be studying God's word and able to benefit from God's word. And we want every person to have biblical friendships where they are helping each other know Jesus better and they're speaking into each other's lives and encouraging and rebuking and confronting and correcting and uh, enjoying gospel care. So this class uh, we're talking about, in this class we're talking about how, how do we do that? How do we develop biblical uh, friendships and how can we be biblical friends to other people? And uh, one way we're doing that is we're, uh, we're, we're reading this book Loving Messy People, and I hope that you are reading it. That's a big part of this uh, class for sure. And we're going to take some time to discuss that book in a few minutes. But one of the things, I don't know what stood out to you, uh, but one of the things that definitely stood out to me as I was reading the chapters this week was the fact that we don't have a a script to follow. Do you remember that part? He says, gospel care is like, what type of music is it like? Jazz. Jazz, yeah. So gospel care is improvisational. Your ministry to a friend may be built upon your biblical knowledge, wisdom, life experience, ministry experience, and the knowledge of the person and situation, but the words you choose to speak and the actions you choose to take are not predetermined. They are improvised in the context of relationship. There is no script for gospel care. And so sometimes we sort of wish there was, like the index cards, you know, uh, you have this problem, okay, let me bring out my index card, I say this. And now you say that, okay, now I say this. But that's not actually how good gospel care goes. And that's important to understand because we we want a script. As we think about discipleship, we sometimes want a list of what to do. Uh, If we just go through this book, then we can check that off. We really discipled well. And good discipleship doesn't quite work like that. And even learning how to be a good discipler that's not quite how it goes. It's kind of like teaching somebody basketball. So obviously, uh, if, if I'm gonna teach basketball, I can't quite just give you a list. Okay, this is what you do to in a game, you know? Uh, here's 45 minutes, this is what you do, and you keep, you're playing the game and you keep pulling out the index card to know, oh, dribble now, oh, you know, fake left, move right. You can't really teach basketball uh, that way, but I can teach you some basic principles, and then we can practice. Uh, to be able to play effectively. And that's kind of what we're trying to do here when it comes to the discipleship process. And we began, you remember, by talking about the importance of building a relationship. So that was number one, relationship. Uh, In Loving Messy People, he gives a four-step process. He talks about knowing, serving, speaking, and gospeling. And uh, that's a good description of the process. Paul Tripp, in his uh, book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, one of my favorite books on... Counseling and discipleship. He uh, boils it down to four steps as well. He says, Love, uh, speak, uh, love, know, speak, do. And that's helpful. My dad, he has eight eyes that he talks about the eight eye monster, but the eight eye process for biblical counseling and discipleship. And his, uh, the first eye he gives is involvement. And uh, so, what we're doing uh, these first couple classes is just emphasizing the importance of building relationships if you want to be of help to others. And last week, we tried to put an exclamation point on that by looking at the way God works with us. We are representing God, we are his ambassadors, and God is a relational God. He doesn't simply send down a series of YouTube videos to uh, save us, he sent down his, his son. And even now, relationship is a key part of how he changes us. Uh, I'm quoting Paul Tripp a lot in this class, and I'm not going to read the whole quote, though I did give it to you in your notes, I think. But you may, might take some time to read it later and think about the way he explains this. But let me fast forward to the end. Our relationship with God is the beginning of our salvation, not the end, a necessity, not a luxury. As Christ's ambassadors, we too must begin by building relationships of love, grace, and trust with others. Like the relationship God established with us through Christ, the relationships we build provide the context for his continuing work of change so relationships are optional when it comes to your mechanic Relation, relationships are optional when it comes to your barista relationships are not optional when it comes to gospel gospel care which is why we're beginning here by talking about relationships good disciples what do they do they work at building relationships your transform transformation groups what are you going to do first step work at building relationships not just Uh, seeking to know the outside of the person, like, hey, I know that guy has black hair, Uh, uh, but actually knowing the person, getting to know the the real, true, genuine person. And I want to talk about one key quality that you need to demonstrate if you're going to develop the kinds of relationships that help people change. And uh, to get you thinking about what we're talking about, let me read you a counseling case my father often uses as an example. It's about a lady named Clara. Clara, or is it Clara? I don't know. We'd have to ask her, but Clara, I'll say, comes to her pastor stating that she has filed for divorce on the grounds of mental and bodily cruelty. Clara returns for the third session. I I tried to get him here, she says, but he had other things to do. You know what his other things are, of course. I told you all of them. I don't want to hear such charges behind Marty's back, her pastor responds. This continuing hostility towards him, even though you told him you forgave him, seems to indicate you made little or no attempt to bury the issue and start afresh. I don't think that you understand forgiveness. You forgive him. You know there's a limit after he's beat me and is drinking away our money, maybe. But when I came home and found him with another woman, I could never bury that. He's just an immature, animalistic pig, she declares." Her pastor tells her that it will be necessary for her to change her language about her husband and that he's here to help but not to solve or solve her self-righteous attitude and listen to her ever-increasing charges against her husband. Why are you siding with him? I'm the one who belongs to this church. She breaks into tears. Now, uh, if we had more time, we could discuss what went wrong. I, I think it's probably kind of obvious, but in case it's not... Something definitely look, went wrong, <laughs> just, so you, just so you know. That's, that definitely, something definitely went wrong. But it might seem confusing at first to know what went wrong, because if you look at what the pastor said, his actual words, some of what he was saying was true. You could say, okay, that's actually accurate. So is the problem just Clara's then? You know, she's just an over-emotional lady who's... Uh, just the only one who is the obstacle to this relationship developing? No, I don't think so. I don't think this pastor was helpful in this moment, really hardly at all. Why? What did he do wrong? Well, this is how my father diagnoses the problem and I agree with him. He says, the counselor in Clara's case failed because he was too problem-oriented in his approach. It seems he had done little to establish involvement with his counselee. He had not endeavored to build a relationship with her that would assure her of his concern. He could have taken time to listen, to hear, and sympathize with the pain she was experiencing, but instead he jumped right in and addressed her sin. Almost immediately, Clara viewed him as an enemy or opponent rather than an ally, and as long as she viewed the counsellor this way, his counsel would mean little to her. His words might be truthful and appropriate to her situation, but she would reject them. In other words, even though he was right in what he was saying, perhaps to a certain extent, he was wrong about the way he was saying it. He didn't demonstrate compassion. And so if you wanna build a relationship that helps other people change, you need to work on building a caring relationship with that person. That's what we're saying today. And you know where building a caring relationship with someone begins? This is gonna be radical. It begins with actually caring. So that's what we want to talk about right now, Um, caring, compassion, the importance of compassion and caring in our transformation groups, our discipleship relationships. And what do we mean by caring, by compassion? We mean basically Romans 12, verse 15. In uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 15, uh, the apostle Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. In other words, uh, we mean God wants you to be emotionally invested in people to the point where you sincerely rejoice when they rejoice and weep when they weep. We mean Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. God wants you to be so committed to other believers that their interests become yours. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Basically, we mean 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, brothers, have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So do you hear that part? A a tender heart. So that actually is a command. So if someone says, that's just not how I'm wired, what I say to them is, you're wrong. I say that very tenderly. (laughs) But that, I don't have to say it to that guy probably because he, but I, uh, that's, that's, that's sin. The Bible commands us to have a tender heart. And God wants our heart to be soft towards others and for them to be able to see it, to know it. A uh, one word the Bible uses to describe this deep concern for people is compassion. And without compassion, no matter how right you are in what you're saying, you're wrong in how you're acting. And this is a key quality that you need to work on developing if you're going to build transforming relationships with other people. You want to be helpful, step one, build a relationship. You want to build a relationship that actually helps demonstrate compassion. Now, let me just kind of cement that, and then we'll talk about how to grow in this area. But let me cement why this is such an important quality, why it's not just a nice quality, but it's actually a biblical one. And uh, it's not too hard to prove this. Uh, The first proof would just be The fact that we're actually commanded to be compassionate so we could probably stop there but Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 in Colossians 3 Paul wants to demonstrate the difference the gospel should make on the way we as believers treat people this is one of my favorite passages hopefully you'll hear it soon we'll see but uh, this is I just love this passage because he's looking at the habits and ways we used to have before we were saved and now he says we're in Christ and because we're in Christ there's a whole different way we should relate to one another, and so he says in Colossians three twelve as uh, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion. This is the first, the first description he gives of what it looks like to live as God's chosen ones, as people so dearly loved by God, compassion. And the word in the Greek literally would be bowels of compassion, so like your gut. It's actually, you know how it is when you really feel for someone, you actually almost feel it in your gut, or you do feel it in your gut. And that's what that word means. It's like to have a gut that feels for other people. You need to have a deep gut-level feeling of compassion for others. This is something you should pursue. And it's not only commands like that where he tells us to be compassionate uh, that demonstrate the importance of uh, concern and care, deep, concern and care. It's also every single time the Bible commands us to love someone else, it's obviously assuming compassion. Loving another person is more than just feeling for them, but it's not much less. It's, it, 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 would be, it's, it would be hard to say, I really deeply love this person as Christ called me to love them, but I don't give a rip about what's going on in their life. That would sort of be an oxymoron, our contradiction. So every time you see a command in the Bible to love, it's assuming that you understand true love involves a deep concern. So compassion is important because it's a command, but uh, second of all, it's important because it's one of the key qualities that we find in people in the Bible that we're commanded to imitate. So you look at the people in the Bible that are held up as examples for us to imitate, and what do you see about them over and over? You see they were a people who were deeply compassionate. Uh, for, the example, for example, the Apostle Paul. Paul was a man who loved truth. Obviously, you don't, you don't get to have a much bigger head for theology than the Apostle Paul. And yet, you read his letters, and it, it's clear that he loved people, and he let them know it. And his deep affection for them impacted the way he ministered to them. Uh, he, I think of the uh, book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 2, where he says, we were like a nursing mother. Remember us? He always has to say, remember us? Well, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then he goes on, he says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And uh, there's really only one person I can think of in the Bible who is a better example of how tightly connected love for truth and love for people are than Paul, and that's Jesus. And uh, Jesus' whole ministry was marked by uh, compassion. In fact, if you think about Jesus versus the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees, Had religious zeal for sure. If you had asked uh, the people in Israel who is most serious about the truth, most of them would have said the Pharisees were the most zealous for for the truth. The problem was that their passion for the truth was really passion for self dressed up in religious disguise and one proof that 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 was true was their lack of compassion and Jesus has to keep coming back to them and, and saying that actually, right? He's like, haven't you guys read the Bible? And they're like, we read it all the time. He's like, no, I'm not sure that you really read it very carefully because it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Someone, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, uh, just pointed out the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees like this. He said, if you wanted to sum up the whole of Jesus's ministry in regards to us, you might use the phrase, and he was moved with compassion. We serve a savior whose heart was broken by the needs of people and whose body was broken for their good, and something's broken in our hearts if we claim to be passionate about the truth while being uncompassionate towards people. Um, Obviously, Jesus also teaches us what true compassion looks like, and so we have to remember that the world doesn't get to define compassion, Jesus does, and so his kind of compassion does often look different than the way the world thinks about compassion. But at the same time, Jesus was a person who cared deeply for others. I love this quote from John Calvin. He says, if then we think we're approved by God and love does not reign in us, we deceive ourselves. The world may applaud us, but our whole life will be utterly loathsome until love is established in our hearts so that she governs, and we tend always to that end, yes, and perform all our works by her. Now then, seeing that love is the true perfection of the faithful and of God's children, let us see what it consists of. This is, a, this is so important what he says here. So he's saying love, if we don't have love, you know, stop right there, like ABCs. <laughs> so uh, whatever else we say about our relationship with God, if we don't have love, Calvin, we're utterly loathsome. I guess you could get away with saying stuff like that at, at, at back in the 1600s, but we're utterly loathsome. But then he says, we can't just say, you know, we have love. We have to ask, what does it mean to have love? And he goes on, he says, if a man boasts that he has love and in the meanwhile has neither lowliness nor gentleness nor patience, he makes the Holy Spirit a liar who not without reason shows what is signified by charity or love. For he has not set down the bare word and simply said, be loving, but he's also shown us what is meant by it. So, of course, you know, if I try to shoot a three-point shot, and I miss, and you, the coach, comes to me and says, what happened? And I say, but I tried to make it. The coach is like, but you missed. Of course, we all know you tried to make it. And so if I say, hi, I have love, but I look at my life, and there's no patience, there's no gentleness, there's no compassion, that's not biblical love. We have to pursue compassion. It's not optional. It's commanded in the scripture. It's demonstrated by the people we're supposed to imitate, Paul and Jesus. And it's connected, obviously, to what we believe about the, the God, God and, and the gospel. It's ultimately a worship, worship problem. We, uh, what we revere, we resemble. It's an important line. You see, even in the Old Testament, if you start tracing the way that... Uh, the prophets make fun of people who are worshiping idols or warn against idolatry. They often describe the people who are worshiping idols as being like the idol. So what you worship, you end up becoming like is the point. And so if we serve a God who is merciful, then we should be people who are are merciful. And so the question then, of course, is how? How do we become more compassionate? If this is going to be One of the first steps to building relationships that really help other people, uh, how do we become more compassionate? First step is not so much like, okay, say this now, hmm, I'm sorry. That's not really the first step. Uh, Some of us might need that step, though. That could probably help. But the first step would be appreciating God's love and compassion uh, for you. And uh, this is how Paul motivates people, Ephesians 4, 32 through chapter 5, verse 2. We don't have time to read all of it, but he says, or look at it very carefully, I mean. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. He's saying, because God in Christ has treated you this way, You imitate God in your relationships with others by forgiving them and loving them. Uh, So it is a deep gratitude for what God has done for you that produces forgiveness and love. And so if you meet someone who is not forgiving and someone who is having a hard time loving others, you know you're meeting a person who doesn't appreciate God's forgiveness and love for them. And uh, in the church, sometimes that becomes hard because everybody's like, yeah, I do. I, I know that. Well, no, you actually don't. I mean, again, tenderheartedly, but you don't really know it. <laughs> if you're not forgiving others and loving others deeply, you don't know it. You, it actually is a problem that you need to go back and make sure you, you understand what you think you know because someone who has been loved much loves much. It's the way it works. It's, you will not find people who are gripped with a sense of their own unworthiness before God and who are overwhelmed with gratitude for their forgiveness by God who are not also extremely gracious and compassionate and forgiving and loving people themselves. And and that's so important. You will not find people who are gripped with a sense of their own unworthiness before God and who are overwhelmed with gratitude for their forgiveness by God, who are not also extremely gracious and compassionate and forgiving and loving people themselves. Um, And, you know, this is hard, again, sometimes to get right because it's easy to fool yourself into thinking, because I say the right things about sin, that I must believe the right things about my own sinfulness. But it doesn't always work that way. Uh, you can you know, be the kind of person who has your theology totally straight. You would never uh, say, I believe people are saved by being good. You like, totally know that. Like, you can preach total depravity every day. But in your own heart, you don't really see yourself as a, a needy person who is desperate for God's forgiveness. So a better test, really, of what you believe about sinfulness than just can you, like, say the right words. That's, that you got to be able to say the right words, but a better test of what you really believe is how you treat other people. What you believe about your sinfulness is revealed in the way you relate to others. A heart that's broken over its own sin will be a heart that breaks, breaks for others, which is why Paul brings us back to the character of God. And if you want to become more compassionate, uh, you need to know God better. That's the step. You need to know the the gospel better. It's good theology that drives biblical mercy. Sometimes people talk about mercy ministry and theology as like they were competing. And that's like doesn't even make any sense. Like, mercy ministry is deeply theological. It has to be. And if it's not, it's not going to end up being very merciful. to imitate someone, like Paul tells us to do, to imitate God, what do we have to do? We have to know God. Have, we have to study God. And so um, what we're doing, really, when we are compassionate in, is, and merciful as we're thinking about, how do we apply what we know to be true about God to our everyday life? And if it doesn't start here with a deep knowledge of God, it's not going to last, um, because people are messy, and working with people is really hard, which means if you're not starting with God and you don't have a deep theological conviction in terms of showing mercy and compassion, and that's not what's driving this, you're going to find all kinds of reasons when you look at people to give up on them um, and not to feel compassion for them. It's when you are looking up to God that those reasons start to disappear. Because you'll never have to love anyone who deserves your love less than you deserve the love of God. You're never going to have to do that. You're never going to have to forgive anyone more than God's already forgiven you. You'll never have to show more compassion to someone than God's already shown to you. That's why forgiveness, love, compassion are such good tests of how much you're maturing in your relationship with God because these are the kinds of attitudes that reveal what you really believe. And so um, it's important we show compassion. And how do we develop compassion? One, we develop compassion by growing in our uh, knowledge of God and our appreciation of the gospel. But here are just some more specific steps very quickly in like two minutes, nine steps you can take. See if I can do this. One, if you're gonna show compassion in your, Discipleship relationships, don't treat the person you're discipling like a project. Treat them like a person. So people matter to Jesus, and they should matter to you. And uh, one way you make it clear to people that they matter to you is that you try to be approachable. Um, If you think of yourself as too important to really listen to people who are hurting, you're thinking way too highly of yourself. Imagine if God did that with us. Sorry, I'm a little busy right now, like running the world. Um, Maybe I'll get back to you uh, when you can say it quicker. Um, It's good he doesn't have such an attitude towards us. Treat other people with respect by relating to them the way you would want them to relate to you if you were in their shoes, or at least uh, if you were like them. (laughs) Work hard at focusing on them. You're busy, so was Jesus. And when someone comes to you with a problem, they're often demanding a lot of your time. And um, that's why people who the world considers important often struggle with compassion because they're like, I don't have time for this. I'm a busy, busy guy. And compassion doesn't really flourish when you're multitasking. Compassion requires that you trust God enough to slow down and be present with the person you're speaking to, almost as if they were the only one in the room with you. And if you don't have time to do that, which is real, sometimes we don't, we have to, compassion would also cause us to be able to try to say, hey brother or sister, I really think you are, um, what what you're going through, I want to hear it. Unfortunately, right now is I have this or that, but can we, uh, can we find another time when I'll be able to focus on you uh, better? Or can I help you find someone else that uh, will be able to give you the attention that you need? So don't treat people like, um, projects but like people I guess that was my two minutes now the other eight I'll just have to (laughs) don't speak to those you're trying to help as if they don't know anything about what they're going through um obviously if somebody comes to you with a problem it's usually they've thought about that problem a little bit and sometimes uh if you're not careful the way you can speak to them can be like oh you're obviously you've never you've never taken any time to think about this I know the answer within 30 seconds of you saying it don't treat them like they're helpless. They may be coming to you for help, but try not to treat them as if they're completely helpless, especially if they're Christians. That means they're a believer, they have the Holy Spirit, they have the Bible. Third, think about more than just what you're going to say to people who are hurting. Think about who you're saying it to. Um, when someone's really hurting, it, it's a little bit offensive uh, when you talk as if all they needed was more information. Um, Hurting people need more information, but they also need all of you, your heart as well as your intellect. Um, It's kind of like the guy, this is a very small illustration, but kind of like the guy who's been stuck in traffic for two hours and he comes into the room and he's just so frustrated to be late and just feeling terribly about being late. He's like, oh, that was so hard, I was in traffic for two hours. And one other guy's there sitting there, he's like, oh, shush. If you had just taken the 5 to the 2 to the, to the, I know, the I-40, I, you would never be late. That was dumb. Uh, why didn't you turn on your, you know, Waze? It's like, oh, I didn't really need directions right now. Like, I, I actually was just trying to state that that was a very difficult time to be in traffic for so long. Um, so you want to think about not just what you're saying, but also who you're saying it to. Now other guys, maybe they're like, hey, thanks, that's really helpful. Um, make sure you're speaking words that are biblically true in a manner that's biblically appropriate. So the Bible actually is against clamor, which would be uh, trying to manipulate people to do something through raising your voice. And really yelling. You know what yelling, uh, when I struggle with yelling, which fortunately I didn't really grow up in a yelling home, so um, it's not so much of a habit. But when I struggle with yelling, if somebody struggles with yelling, Usually what's happening is they don't believe the gospel, and they're not, they're not praying. And that's from James 4. You can check it out sometimes. But, like, what's happening is I'm trying to use my words to get you to conform to my will. And not just my words, but the way that I speak those, speak those words. Um, and so compassion requires thinking not only about what you're saying, but who you're saying it to, and, and then how you're saying it. And then uh, fifth, refuse to use your speech to tear others down. You want to think about, um, and maybe if you're not good at this, it's good to have a friend who can help you. I have a a list actually from my dad of healthy speech, unhealthy speech. And some of us have developed habits where even when we're asking for help or even when we're admitting that we're wrong, we can tear the person we're admitting we're wrong down, and we don't even realize it. So like, before we admit that we're wrong, we say three reasons they're wrong. So right when we get to how we were wrong, they've already been beaten down uh, enough. And some of us do that without even, it's like instinctive. Like, we don't even realize that we've just beaten that person down three times before, Stop! I'm sorry. Um, Okay, that means a lot. You know, I can't see why you're getting upset. I literally just said I'm sorry. Six, uh, practice speaking in loving, gracious, gentle ways. So this, you know, it, so for some of us, it's going to be a new way of speaking, and it's going to feel awkward. Like, you know, if you've developed a habit of kissing your wife and you turn your your uh, head this way, and then the next time you turn your head that way, you're like, well, this kind of feels wrong, you know, because it's just you never, you don't do it that way. And so sometimes when you're speaking in new ways to someone, it, it feels weird, like, I love you, you know, and like, oh, wow, this is weird. I'm talking to a guy and saying I love you, and I just feel so wrong. But, Paul, did I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus? Try saying that. guy's like, whoa. (laughs) Go back to being uh, uncompassionate. No, uh, practice speaking in loving, gracious, and gentle ways. Uh, Seven, don't just tell people answers, but take time to pray with people who are hurting. Make sure you're willing to learn from the person who's coming to you. Um... If if it's easy for some of us, especially if you get into counseling and discipleship a lot, it's easy to start thinking of yourself as the problem solver and them as the problem. And and, uh, the fact is life is more complex than that. So usually the people that come to you for help are people that you really can learn something from. And you want to kind of have the attitude, at least, Lord, what can you teach me in this moment as I'm working with this person? Make it clear, ninth, to the people that you're ministering to that you love them and God does too. Um, if someone's hurting deeply, they usually feel very insecure. And so uh, they, they need to know that you love them and God loves them. And finally, this is free, I guess. Number 10, surround yourself with people who are compassionate that you can learn from. So uh, one of the best ways to learn anything uh, is by watching. And so if you want to become a more compassionate person, uh, seek to have people in your life that are good at showing compassion and then watch what they do. And don't just say, ah, why are you so soft like that? But actually be like, oh, okay, let's see what I can learn, learn from this person about showing compassion. So I went a little over today. Sorry about that, but this is an important one. If we're going to help people, we want to build relationships. And if we're going to build relationships, one place, one key quality to start is to really care about about the people uh, that we're ministering to, and uh, that takes some work and sometimes takes some skill.